Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 121 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we're talking about the news. The news. Every time we, we do a news episode, I just like, I can't help it. I just, maybe it's the mustache. I just channel my inner Ron Burgundy and, you know, I'm sitting here saying unique New York. The human torch was denied a bank loan. <laughs> A mortgage, actually. <laughs> hey, on that note, uh, we're talking a bit about some trouble in the mortgage market today, and we have a whole bunch of other great news to go over for you. Hey, everybody. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a mortgage agent, real estate investor, and a bootleg Ron Burgundy when we do these news episodes. Joined today, every Tuesday and Friday, by none other than Mr. Real Estate himself, Daniel Foch. Daniel Fosher, real estate investor and broker and director of economic research at a company called Rare Real Estate. Um, before we get into stuff, we got a bunch of, yeah, a lot of mortgage related uh, news today. But um, before we do that, I'm going to jump into a little bit of housekeeping. Meetups, we have September 12th, they're around 6 to 8 p.m. local time. Uh, we have nine groups coast to coast, almost 900 members now. Um, quickly, Vancouver, hosted by Steve Soretsky and Monica Rao at August Brewing. Calgary, Cash and Homes, and Calvert Mick are putting that on at Cashin's office. This is on the 12th. Edmonton, um, our listeners and partners in Edmonton, Demir and Sean, are putting one on at the Canadian Brew House. Kitchener Waterloo, Zach DeJong is putting it on, and it's at, um, I think it's a, a brewery there. I can't remember the name of it now. Something Park. I apologize, Zach. I'll make sure I get that right for the next one. Um, Toronto, the this guy, Ron Burgundy himself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nick Hill putting it on at local Liberty Village. Barry Ontario accountant Patrick Cassette, who has a very highly attended. Actually, Calgary is beating him now on attendance, but was the most highly attended. Or just highly there for the speaking. dinner jacket. Yeah. So Patrick Cassette's putting one on at Barry at the Canadian Brew House there. Moncton, I think we're working on one with Cameron and uh, St. John as well. I'm not sure if we'll get to those, the Moncton and um, St. John in. September or if they'll be pushed on the October date, but we'll have, we're going to have one September 12th, October 10th and November 14th meetups in all of those cities, hopefully quickly as well. Yeah. Let's just quickly plug the, the merch, go get your live, laugh, leverage pillows. We got a whole bunch of new great hats. And honestly, with all the bankruptcies that are coming out and the stuff that we're talking about today, there might be some new clothing material we'll be putting out. Uh, as well as the course. I know we've mentioned this in the last couple episodes and, Spots are filling up quickly, everybody. Uh, September 19th is the cutoff date, so make sure you get in there before that. If you have any questions specifically about the course, just shoot us an email and we'll do our best to answer those. Uh, very excited about it, though. Yeah, realestateinvestingcourse.ca, links in the show notes. Uh, links for all this stuff is in the show notes, by the way, for the meetups, for the merch, and for the course. Uh, and for our newsletter with uh, in partnership with Patter, which we would love for you to check out. And if you've ever emailed us or if you've signed up to the meetups, you're going to be subscribed to the newsletter anyway. Um, so you'll you'll already be on that. You don't need to send us an email anyway. Dan, um, you've got a couple you've got a couple events yourself coming up. You're uh, yeah, you're chatting um, at a few places. Yeah, I'm going to be speaking at the Saskatchewan Realtors Association event on September 12th. So I won't be there for the meetups. I'm actually going to another industry meetup in in uh, Regina that day. And then um, I'm actually also speaking on a panel with uh, John Pasalis and Jordan Skrinko of Precondo.ca, the pre-construction guy who has been on this show, the pre-construction, Precon Don. The Precon Don. Um, talking at the Veritas conference. Um, and we're actually going to have Anthony from Veritas on, I think, before yeah, before the event. And then we'll also do probably some live event coverage, or not live, but like pre-recorded event coverage. People seem to really like those 
interviews that we did at ULI. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, without further ado, let's get to the news because it's, it's getting weird out there. Yeah, lots to talk about. So um, let's start off. Mortgage amortizations. This was from Wawa. They put a tweet out. It just says uh, stats on residential mortgages in Canada. July 2023, RBC, 43% of its mortgages had uh, remaining amortizations over 25 years. Wow. Um, which, just so you're aware, Sked A banks aren't allowed to have AMs over 25 years on um, what, what traditional, not, yeah, I guess traditional loans, mm-hmm. right? TD had 48% of its mortgages uh, had a remaining amortization over 25 years. Poor TD. TD keeps making the news. This is not the only time they come yeah, up in this episode. Either. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, they're just under way more scrutiny because they operate so heavily in the U.S. Like, they're a top 10 financial institution in the States, right? Yeah. I mean, we went through that list in biggest banks and whatever it was um, in, the, in, the, in the States. And they're, I want to say they're the 10th in the States or 11th in the States. Yeah. So, j- just a reminder as to why we're even talking about amortization schedules and why, you know, RBC and TD having almost half of their mortgages having a very high amortization schedule. Amortization is an accounting method for spreading out the costs for the use of long-term assets over the expected period of time. So again, mortgages, you'll have your traditional five-year term, but that term will be based off, that payment schedule will be based off of a amortization schedule, usually 25 or 30 years. So the fact that these amortization schedules are actually going up, even though people are paying their mortgages, is definitely a bit of a cause for concern. Yeah, for sure. BMO is at 46% uh, over 25 years, and Scotiabank groups their 25 to 29 year remaining amortizations, but it's evident that their variable mortgages have led to a healthier portfolio. And on that note, amortization comes from the term, if you really want to easily think about it, it's Latin. I know you, being Italian, you want to, you, <laughs> you kind of want to go with the amore, amore rude, but it's not. It has nothing to do with love. It's, oh. it's a mort, which is death. Uh, and it means basically, I think it means like to kill something, yeah. right? to amortize, to kill a mortgage, right? So you just got to be killing that mortgage. There we go. They're our, killing it. Our resident Latin expert strikes again. Anyway, on the topic of TD, you want to uh, talk a little bit about their... Hitting yeah. the naughty list in the U.S. right now. Yeah, TD makes a another appearance in the news here. And remember, TD not so long ago was the most shorted bank in the world. Uh, here they are making the news again. TD could face penalties in probe of anti-money laundering compliance in the U.S. Now, if you're listening to the show, you know we've covered uh, money laundering, money laundering through real estate. Um, we actually had a full dedicated episode on it. I can't remember the, the episode number, but go check that. It's got money laundering in the in the title. Um, the article goes on to say, Toronto Dominion Bank TD coming off less than stellar third quarter financial results that fell short of analyst expectations, said it is facing a probe over anti-money laundering compliance in the United States. So this isn't the TD that our Canadian listeners are, are going to to take money out of or, or put money into. This is, um, again, what we see down in the States. It, I mean, same TD, really. Same, same TD, but, uh, but yeah, just, I guess, you know, not in the country yet. Anyways, it notes to its earnings report, TD said that it's been responding to both formal and informal inquiries from regulators and law enforcement concerning its Bank Secrecy Act and its anti-money laundering AML compliance program, and that the probes include an investigation by investigation. Went, by, well, well, you, you crossed the border there, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, that was that was. I was talking from a Texas point of view there. Um, investigation <laughs> by the U.S. Department of Justice. It in May, TD called off its plan, 
its planned U.S. $13.4 billion acquisition of Memphis-based First Horizon Corporation, saying the decision was mutual because there was no clarity on when regulatory approval would be reached. Subsequent media reports suggest uh, regulators were concerned about the Canadian bank's anti-money laundering compliance in the U.S. So TD makes it into the media again for, as you said, Dan Bean, kind of on the naughty list here. Anti-money laundering is uh, is pretty serious, and um, TD is apparently not doing a great job with it. Yeah, my argument would be I don't think Canada is doing a great job with it. I would agree. And, you know, I mean, we get told that we're a little bit too cynical here on the show, but I think that One this, of us in particular, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it's you, right? <laughs> yeah. I think that um, it's evident that this money laundering, the, the the rules that we have in Canada around financing, money laundering, fraud, etc., are are a lot more lax in Canada than they are in the States. And once we get put mm-hmm. through the, the scrutiny test that of being a, a U.S. financial institution, we have a hard time passing that test. And now we're starting to see what that looks like in real time. Whether or not that poses real financial, systemic, et cetera, risk for Canadian financial institutions ahead of a major correction. I mean, most of them are trading at like 52-week lows anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the TSX is trading pretty low by comparison to the rest that's hitting. Yeah. yeah. And so- I like who knows whether or not we're at the bottom here and I'm not really I would go I would say go to listen to the, the Canadian investor podcast if you want to know more on the stock side but it's just from my perspective not like it's just more of this like unhealthy we're not running the right type of economy in Canada and we kind of need that burn down moment so you can build it back up properly we need to be uh we need our phoenix rising from the ashes here moment is that another harry potter the reference? human torch or the human torch there we go circle back i love it he um, was denied alone of course <laughs> the uh the next one we got here is 22 percent of canadian home builders cancel projects amid high rates despite the severe housing shortage so this from comes from toronto star uh the canadian home builders association or chba released its second quarter report last week which saw the construction of both single family and multifamily units remain low but increased slightly in the second quarter an improvement from the lows recorded in the fourth quarter of 2022 I mean, I think this is just really reflective of the fact that the economics of home building are very broken right now. Despite there being massive excess demand in Canada, we can't make projects work. And I, I put out a tweet. I was actually blown away by the, the response I had on this. A couple of days ago, it just said, if you were running for prime minister right now, what would you propose as a, yeah. as a yeah. um, housing policy to fix the housing crisis? And it had like 600 responses. A lot of, and a lot, lot of them were really good. It's on, yeah. uh, on Twitter. I mean, I would actually re- prefer to see a lot of the people in that thread as a prime minister than, than the current spectrum of, <laughs> of candidates that we have. But, um, you know, the reality is there's there's a point at which the government has to help and this doesn't talk. This isn't about like bailing out the bailing out the housing market, bailing out the banks, any of that. It's like we need to make the economics of home building better if supply is going to solve the problem. And now we're seeing a, a supply shortage in the period of time when we most need it. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a mess, right? It, it's honestly it's 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 shocking, but it isn't. It's shocking from the standpoint that if you're coming into this and all you've heard and all you've read surface level is we are in a massive housing crisis international students, immigration, all, all these factors that just are putting such such a weight on our um, on our housing infrastructure at this point. And then to see a headline come out that 22% of Canadian home builders are canceling projects, it literally just seems like opposite day, opposite world, like what is happening? But it all comes down to dollars and cents, right? It comes down to, does this project make, make 
a home builder money. And if it doesn't make a home builder money, why in the world would a home builder take all the risk and 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 have literally no incentive to go and, and go and build it. So there's something seriously wrong here that, that uh, needs to be fixed. Well, and I think, you know, to me, tax is the biggest thing. Like in most of the for suggestions sure, from sure. developers in, and it's like, look, we want to build purpose-built rental, but we're paying HST and development charges and all of this stuff. And we've done a full episode on this. 31% of the cost structure of housing in most provinces in Canada um, is, or it's greater than 20% in most yeah. provinces in Canada goes to to taxes. It's like, if you want to see housing built, if you're the, if you're the government, stop, you know, everybody's like, oh, the financialization of housing. Who's financializing it the most? Who makes the, who stands to make the most money from it? It's the, the government. government. Right. Yeah. And so you want it, you want it. It's like, there's a, the perfect way of putting it is like, we tax smoking to make, make people stop smoking, right? We tax carbon now to make people stop using fuel so much. What did we think was going to happen when we, <laughs> we started taxing houses? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. You know, when you put it like that, it just, it's so simple. Yeah. Crazy. And, and yeah. And the next one, perfect segue is, you know, one of the other pieces of the economics is home prices aren't aren't meeting where we need them to be for developers to feel compelled to to develop houses. So why don't you hit me with this next article from StatCan? Yeah, from our friends at uh, StatCan, the National Index edged down by 0.1%. So moving the needle here, month over month in July, and that's following two months of growth. So of the census, uh, 27 metropolitan areas were surveyed in July, prices were unchanged in 12, down in eight and up in seven. So kind of going back to a little bit of that kangaroo market that uh, that we've been you know, following for the last year and a half or so. Yeah. And so Victoria led that monthly decline in July. New home prices decreased the, month, the most month over month in Victoria in July, followed by Greater Sudbury, Regina, and Ottawa, with builders in most CMA's center, census metropolitan areas noting weakened market conditions as the main reasons for the reported monthly decline. So again, this is really not helping us with housing supply when we don't have the buyers who are paying to create the supply doing that anymore. Not They're not willing to pay, and the cost structure hasn't gone down. We're in an inflationary environment. It still mm-hmm. costs more and more each month to build houses until we see that get into to the deflation. Nothing, we're at we're at like a stalemate right now. Yeah, it really is. It really is a stalemate. Like again, why would a builder build if they're not going to make any money? Charity, I guess. I don't know. Like, yeah, seriously. You know, the funny thing is it's that old adage, like if you build it, they will come. Well, look, build it. We're already here. Yeah, <laughs> we're waiting, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. And everyone's like, oh yeah, builders, they're so evil. Like they just want to, they're just in it to make money. It's like, oh yeah. Like as why opposed to everyone to, else yeah, who, do you who, work who does day? their job for free. Yeah, exactly. Oh exactly. man. Anyway, this was the second consecutive monthly decrease in new home prices in Victoria and the seventh in Ottawa, seven months. And Jeez. Ottawa has been crazy, man. Some of the stuff people have been posting out of, out of there and yeah. house price drops in, in pre-construction and some of the, the resale price drops, man, like 500 K haircut you're seeing like 50 percent like um you hate to see it because you you know behind those numbers are are people yeah right even if they've made horrible or stupid or uneducated decisions which unfortunately many have you know these are fun numbers to look at and talk about and joke about on social media almost because it's just like this is so crazy but don't forget that could be a very average person that just lost five hundred thousand dollars it is true right because like there's all that like on uh, house sigma and, and zolo and whatever you can see what houses sold for and a lot of people are posting like this like almost like wall street bets loss porn track record loss porn. Yeah. It, it really is man yeah. but it's somebody else's losses right yeah. like and i, I mean yeah it's it's it, it it is sad to see like i i honestly don't have a lot of empathy for speculators and i think that there's a degree of darwinism and and we need people to suffer like what happened in the 90s so that they stop 
yeah. treating like every time a house gets bid up by 500k and that person lost all that money there's a victim on the other side too it's a family who just wanted to buy that house right and so lose lose right yeah. like the direction where we were going wasn't good either anyway j- jump to um the yearly decline here with victoria yeah, so nationally new home prices were down almost a full percent year over year in July in, cr- in contrast to the increase of 7.5% recorded in July of the previous year. So down 1% and that was after seeing a almost 8% increase. Borrowing costs have continued to rise since July of 2022, I'm sure we're all aware, contributing to the yearly decline in new home prices and slowing of the housing market. Uh, CMHC reported a 54.2% more single-family homes completed, but not sold. So that's unabsorbed so 54.2% inventory. 54.2% increase in unabsorbed inventory. That's Crazy. Wild. Yeah. So now the builders are the bag holders too. And people wondering why they aren't building more. Well, that's one more reason why they aren't. So among the uh, CMA surveyed, Victoria was down 3, 3.7% recorded the largest year-over-year decline in new home prices in July of 2023, followed by Edmonton at just under 3%. A similar yearly decline was observed in the resale market in Victoria, with the Victoria Real Estate Board reporting a 35 year-over-year decline in the benchmark price of a single-family home. In July, the largest year-over-year increases were reported in Quebec at 3.5%, Calgary at 1.6%, and St. John's at 1.6% as well. Next up, we got another article here. Private mortgage lender Rompspin cuts monthly distribution for a fourth time and cites disappointing loan repayment. So um, Rompspin's been in some episodes before, but yeah, they never done, make it in for, for any good news. No, yeah. Guys. I mean, it's, yeah. Anyway, the I'm just going to read a quick comment that somebody responded to, to me Perfect. posting this article. It says, distributions may go even lower, maybe zero. It's about capital preservation now, which is what private mortgage lenders have to do when commercial real estate hits the fan in North America. Yikes. I don't have much more to add. To that, yeah. But. No, I mean, just, you know, again, this it, there's so many layers to this, right? Private mortgages, um, lending institutions, how they react, how the consumer sentiment reacts to this, as as well as uh, commercial real estate. Man, I mean, they commercial real estate's in a really tough spot right now. You're seeing office buildings literally sitting vacant, and more and more conversations about what to do with these, how to turn them into something useful. So, and especially if those if those uh, landlords for those office buildings aren't getting paid, aren't aren't making any money because there's no tenants in there something's got to give. So anyways, let's uh, let's keep moving. More mortgage uh, news here. Major mortgage insurer cuts back on disclosing information about homeowners with underwater loans. Uh, Dan, before we get into this, do you want to give a little bit of context to this one maybe? Yeah, sure. So this is basically um, Canada Guarantee, which is close to a third of the um, total mortgage insurance. So mortgage, if you, it's a lot of it's in the article actually, but if you're buying with less than um, 20%, 20% down, yeah. you have to get mortgage insurance. And so there's three companies that insure that. Um, Sagan, which is 36% of the market. It's either Sagan or Sagan. It's a- uh, Yeah, I, I don't know. Sagan. Like Tyler Sagan? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, he owns it, I heard. No, actually Brookfield owns it. That's um, an interest. Yeah, but um, so Sagan and then CMHC, which is the beloved CMHC taxpayer insurance, love, yeah. 35%. And Canada Guarantee is the third, uh, and they're 29%. So a little bit less than a third of the the total insurance. And they're private. And actually, they're 
very much owned by the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, I think. Mm. So there is some pension fund exposure. Anyway, this really scared me when I first read this article. And then I started researching it a little bit more and I was like, ah, okay. I mean, let's see. Right. Anyway, read it and we'll, we'll opine. So one of Canada's major mortgage insurers has stopped disclosing numbers about the riskiest part of its balance sheet, where it has guaranteed mortgages for borrowers who now owe more than the value of their home. So it says, until the first quarter of this year, Canada Guarantee Mortgage Insurance Company disclosed the share of loans it guaranteed for borrowers who had a loan to value or LTV ratio greater than 100%. So they owed more than the house is worth. So also known in as- that, an, In the last episode, we talked about um, buying a million dollar home and now it's only down. worth $800,000. A lot he, of that. Yeah. So also known as an underwater loan, Sound Not good. nearly as fun as underwater basket weaving or underwater <laughs> hockey. An underwater loan, it means the principal of the loan is greater than the home's market value. By the way, this is excellent reporting. This is one of the most well-written articles I've seen on on a sophisticated topic. I literally, like, we're just reading it word for word. Yeah, it's who really, who really was well the, done. let's give the- uh, I can't remember, actually, but- Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm reading here. Maybe we'll give the author a shout out um, here. Making our jobs easy. Thank you. So in Canada's guarantee 2023 data reports, the metric is absent today. The highest LTV ratio it now discloses is for loans with an LTV about 95%. Above 95. Above yeah. 95%. These disclosures, disclosures show its riskiest loans have more than tripled in the past 12 months. So, yeah. So this one, like that, that's scary to know that their, their riskiest loans have tripled in the last 12 months. Um, and the... It's interesting because, uh, and the, the author here is Rochelle uh, Younglay, by the way. Um, we, I think I did, just did an article with her. I can't remember uh, a couple of months ago, but um, excellent excellent journalism here. Like the, the way they explain it is really good. Anyway, it says the change in disclosure comes after the Globe and Mail published an article showing how Canada Guarantee and two other mortgage insurers were increasingly guaranteeing underwater loans. So more and more of these loans were hitting that above 100% loan to value. Underwater loans just gives me a really bad visual. Yeah. Um, it's just like, I just think of SpongeBob SquarePants and like some fish lending each other money. <laughs> I think of people treading water and, right. and running out of energy, but uh, I think that's a little dark. Um, Mary Putnam, a spokesperson for Canada Guarantee, said it's, quote, reporting is aligned with industry practice, unquote, in response to a query on why the company changed its disclosure. So then we've got this lovely chart here. Um, and this is the mortgage insurer market share. So Dan- So those are the numbers that I was mentioning. Yeah, before. you'd already gone over this. Just yeah. a refresher, Canada Guarantee, who we're talking about right now, makes up 29% of that market. Sagan, 36%. And then again, our beloved CMHC, 35%. Yeah. So um, when she says the reporting is aligned with industry practice, um, they go on to mention it, but uh, CMHC and Sagan don't report. And this is like- probably a problem within itself. This might actually be the bigger problem. The scarier part is that the other, their two competitors, let's call it, don't report how many underwater loans they have. So the only reason Sagan's getting in trouble now or getting, yeah, uh, getting yeah, Canada Guarantee's getting in trouble. Or sorry, Canada Guarantee's getting in trouble is because they were doing it and now they're not. Right. So that's a bit of a red flag. Well, yeah, the other just, two just were never doing it. Yeah, yeah, it mm. just became, exactly. So they so they go on to say delinquencies remain lower than pre-pandemic levels reflecting strong portfolio quality. She said in an emailed statement. Now, this is where I take issue. The data point, and I've said this a lot of times on the show. I've said that a lot of times on the show too. I, I have to stop <laughs> giving myself credit for saying something before. Anyway. Um, it's our show. You can say yeah. whatever you want. Delinquencies aren't a good data point. 
What, banks only have to report delinquencies 90 days after a, more, a loan is delinquent. And by the time CMHC or there's another um, reporting agency, the Canadian Financial Institutions or Banking, ba- CBA, Bankers Association, reports it. It's on a quarterly report. I think CBA does it in a monthly report, but it's still a month old. So four months. It's been four months from the point somebody stopped paying a, a loan that we hear about it or it becomes a data point. So that like to me... The house is already, so, and this is why I, I look at power of sales, which are up 400% year over year, by the way. By the time that data point exists and we're starting to worry about it and the people who are making decisions about real estate and their loan portfolios are thinking about it and worried about it, it's, it's four months old. The property's already been discharged or, or um, served, sold at, at likely a loss and people and the remaining creditors are sitting there fighting over the scraps mm-hmm. in court during that period of time. So like looking at, at delinquencies, it, it's fine and I get it and it totally is low. I would be very, I think I think all of a sudden it's just going to shoot up because yeah, because totally. everybody's been looking at a data point that's still trending down. Um, Patting and, ourselves in the back right, preemptively. Right. Yeah. Like now, we, now we're in an increasing unemployment market and Tiff Macklem said himself, the number one reason for people to not pay their mortgages is they don't have a job, right? So we're in an increasing unemployment market right? Unemployment's going up. And now all of a sudden, four months from now, we start to hear about the people who just started stop paying their mortgages now because of unemployment. And on CMHC's data, it's six months out because they report on it quarterly, not monthly like CBA. Just like with, I mean, you're so right, Dan, just like with everything, well, not everything, but most things in real estate, especially the data that you and I talk about a lot on the show, interest rates, for instance, right? I mean, these things take time. They're lagging indicators, right? Just because an interest rate happens doesn't mean anything really. What happens with that interest rate takes almost a year to actually work its way through the economy. Similar to delinquencies, right? Something happens now, we don't even find out about it for months. So everything, all these data points need to be taken with a grain of salt and they need to be understood that, you know, what does the delinquency actually mean? And what are the, you know, what's the, what is the, not decision tree, but option tree almost look like coming from, from, from that issue, right? Like how far does this go back? How far do, does this go forward? So the loan to value ratio is a key lending metric and the federal banking regulators consider anything above 75% as risky. The higher the ratio, the riskier the loan is for the lender and the mortgage insurer that backstops the loan if the homeowner stops making payments. So again, 75, anything above 75 is considered risky. We're talking about mortgages with a loan to value ratio of greater than 100%. So, it, you know, we're blowing that 75% out of the water here. For sure. Yeah. And and I think, again, these are like, it's not even to say that those loans are the ones that are going to go uh, or going in on payment. It's just, they're still high risk loans. Like mm-hmm. those are people who, if, if prices don't recover by the time they renew, they now have to renew a mortgage on a house that's worth less than the mortgage they're renewing. At a higher rate. Maybe. I mean, I guess it would depend on what they got it at. But yeah, it's just like, it, these are just not good things. Like there's no point in being like, oh yeah, this is fine and dandy because uh, delinquencies are low. It's like, no, this still sucks. Like yeah. they, they can be, those two things can exist at the same time. And, and they're and they're low for now. Yeah. Um, it says the rapid rise in interest rates over the past year has, a year and a half has triggered a drop in home prices. It also increased the cost of mortgages. These two factors, following home prices and expanding loans have increased LTV ratios. In some cases, these shifts have pulled homeowners underwater. As of the end of last year, Canada Guarantee was backstopping nearly $4 billion worth of loans with an estimated loan-to-value ratio above 100%, and that is according to disclosures on its own website. 
That represents 5% of Canada guarantees outstanding insured mortgages for individuals. And that was up significantly from 532 million or 0.74% of its outstanding insured mortgages in the fourth quarter of 2021. So for the first quarter of this year, Canada Guarantee broke the tradition and stopped doing that disclosure, as we mentioned, um, it, they, which they had been talking about since 2015. Canada Guarantee's amount of loans with an estimated loan-to-value ratio above 95% was nearly $15 billion or 18% of its outstanding insured mortgages for individuals as of June 30th this year. That was up from nearly $12 billion or 15% of its portfolio uh, so a 3% increase in the fourth quarter of 2022 and $4.27 or 5.7% of its portfolio. So these are not small numbers. These are enough of its portfolio to, to have a substantial impact. Yeah, I'm not an actuarial scientist. Who I don't even know what that does is. does <laughs> math for insurance companies, but I would say that having 18% of your insured products um, underwater, per se, in the yeah. article is probably not a good thing. Get your yeah. snorkel. Yeah, in its uh, its delinquency rate, the share of insured loans that were delinquent for a minimum of ninety days was zero point zero nine percent as of mid year, so below one percent. This is a good thing, right? That is like I'm not going to say yep. that that that's a good thing. People aren't failing to pay their mortgages. Um, mortgage insurance is required if a borrower makes a down payment that is less than twenty percent of the purchase of the price of the property, which we mentioned earlier. So Canada Guarantee also stopped disclosing the share of borrowers with amortizations greater than thirty years. It is now only disclosing amortizations greater than twenty-five years. The maximum amortization period for a borrower who requires mortgage insurance is twenty-five years. So we fortunately got those data points from the banks individually, which we mentioned earlier. Um, in this episode. Next up, we're going to talk about housing affordability. Um, yeah. So, we haven't talked about this in a while. Yeah. So this actually fascinated me because I thought we would be... I, I it's, It fascinated me who was, who was worst on this list. So anyway, Canada has the fourth worst detachment from pre-COVID affordability after the US. The US first, mm-hmm. Germany and New Zealand. Germany and New Zealand doesn't surprise me so much. To return to those levels... So remember, housing affordability is mortgage payment as a percentage of income, of household income. So that's, that's, there's three components to that. There's house price, there's interest rate, and there's income. House prices would need to drop 33%. Wow. Or incomes would need to rise 55%, or mortgage rates would need to fall 350 basis points. Holy. In order to get to the same... Um, Levels of affordability yeah. from, from pre-COVID. case. Okay, so before we move on... What do you think is most likely to happen out of those three? Are we are we seeing house prices drop three to three percent? Are we seeing everyone get a fifty five percent raise, or are mortgage rates dropping three hundred and fifty bips, which is three point five percent? My guess would be. I mean, we're seeing unemployment rise, so I don't necessarily see wages going up anytime soon. Ah, but there will be inflationary. I mean, they are growing. Raise. I think like four percent per year, but I think they're four point two percent. It needs to be a hell of a lot better than that. Well, but you give it two years, like, and now all of a sudden we're up 8%, yeah. right? So I, I would say wages will go up a little bit. Like wages will probably do a bit of the work, not 50%, but I think that they'll wages will go up maybe one fifth of the distance that they need to. I can see them going up maybe 8 to 10% over the next, like where I see the bottom being in 2025, sorry, mm-hmm. 2050, <laughs> 2025. <laughs> um so twenty twenty by twenty twenty five, let's say, which is a reasonable outlook. Um, I'm going to say wages be up maybe ten percent. I think rates will be probably down, not three hundred fifty bips, but I think they'll be down hundred and fifty, probably one fifty. I think we'll see. I think we'll see fix settle in probably like the four range mm-hmm. um, by then, 
which is a healthy market from my perspective. What about house prices? I think house prices. Like I hate forecasting on house prices, but I think I think house prices probably got another fifteen percent downside between okay, now so, and then. And that's national. Like I think some places are going to be worse, some places are going to be sure. better. But if you look at the national average, that's where I would expect it to be. So we're not going to hit any of those metrics. Uh, on that, we're not going to hit them directly. No, it'll but be we're going to see some. Yeah, we're going to see a blended solution of, of yeah. all three. Yeah, and to compare that, like in the U.S., it says house prices would need to go down forty-one percent, incomes would need to go up sixty-nine percent, or mortgage rates would need to go down four hundred and thirty basis points. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Anything else on that one? Nope. Okay, let's keep this party going. Uh, this next article here is from Reuters. Routers. Reuters, did we figure out how to say that one properly? I don't know. Reuters? Reuters, that's it, damn it. Nearly all Canadian mortgages have a term of five years or less. That's compared with the 30-year term that's more common in the United States. As of July 2023, residential mortgage debt stood at $2.08 trillion, according to CMHC. It means that when roughly 20% of Canadian mortgages come up for renewal in the next year, it will likely put many borrowers in tougher financial spots than they could have expected just a few months ago. Mortgage rates tend to track moves in the bond market with a lag. Oh, would you look at this? Daniel Foch, Director of Economic Research at Toronto-based Rare Real Estate. Sounds like Pointed a- to a... Is this your... You put your own article in here? I, I love have. when we do that. Um, pointed, you can trust that. You can trust this guy. And you make me read your own. Uh, I'm, so I'm well, quoting Dan here while sitting beside him. I read my own. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this random guy says, uh, pointed to a Toronto regional, uh, a Treb data point that showed the power of sale, a clause that allows lenders to sell a borrower's property if they default on mortgage payments that had risen in the most in recent months. This data showed that power of sale was invoked for 48 to 80 properties in the past three months compared to 14 to 32 a year ago, and that's just in the GTA alone. That number is on track to hit 75 by the end of August, said Daniel Foch. Daniel Foch, do you have any um, comments on Daniel Foch's piece here? This, you know, this data point has been been big for both <laughs> of us. I think you were on CTV with this one, or was it yeah. CTV? Yeah. Talking about this one? Um uh, this has been in, in Bloomberg, and this got me into Reuters, which is somebody I Reuters, whatever that, that which is a, a media that I haven't been in yet. It's great to add to my uh, to my uh, Instagram bio. <laughs> I don't have that in my Instagram bio. We do have it on the course page though, because I think it's part of that kind of yeah. like flow of those course pages. Yeah, right. Look at us; we've been on TV before. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it does help to add credibility. Um, but anyway, the the. This is where I was saying, like delinquencies aren't a super reliable data point. So what what would happen before delinquencies to allude to stress existing? And mm-hmm. to me, looking at those power of sales happening, if somebody's delinquent before ninety days is up, before the bank has even reported it, their house is already listed power of sale on the market. And so I said, okay, I want to see what's going power of sale on the market, and I've seen a four hundred percent increase in that. Again, not a meaningful amount of power of yeah, sale. Yeah, seventy-five. Than, yeah. By the end of August, not crazy. Less than 1% of total supply on the Toronto Real Estate Board. Yeah. Um, 80 properties, right? It's like, it's not that big of a deal. Um, it only takes 1% from my perspective to really meaningfully move the market. Mm-hmm. So I think if we break that 1% of total supply, now all of a sudden you've got lenders pushing sellers to take prices that they're not happy with. You could see a little bit of a race to the bottom, a race yeah. to the exit. But the power of sale piece just shows me, if we, let's just make the assumption. Best case scenario, you know, delinquencies are 
up 200% rather than 400% like power of, sa- power of sale. We've now gone from just below 1% to just below 2%. It's a meaningful increase in delinquencies, right? Understanding that power of sales is a leading indicator of delinquencies. Well, not even, it shouldn't be. It actually happens after somebody's delinquent, but the data point shows up before somebody's delinquent. Exactly. Am I making sense? Yep. Okay. Yep. So if in a worst case scenario, if mortgage delinquencies are up 400%, like Canada Guarantee says they're so low, they're one sub 1%. If they go from 1% to 4%, or sorry, it's not, I think it's it's like less than less than a tenth of a percent. Anyway, whatever it is, if it if it quadruples, I think it would be a bit of a cause for concern. And so I'm just saying, and this is why I'm looking at this, and this is why media agencies want to know about this. It's like they realize that the data isn't super reliable on the delinquency side. Let's look at other data points that might allude to things because it's their job to give people a full scope of information. And for sure. it looks like from my perspective, distress is becoming very apparent in the market. What does this mean for real estate investors? It means, and I and I put out a tweet. This was probably one of my best tweets I've ever, I don't even remember it now, but it said something like, um, if you think the market's going to drop, like whatever, I think it's going to come down. Yeah, yeah. The 20, yes. I think the market's going to come down 15%. So- I should be going out and bidding on properties right now, 15% below market value, not 15% below what they're listed at. Cause I don't know if that's market value, but 15% below what I think market value is. Cause if I get a deal at 15% market value, now all of a sudden I've got it earlier than the bottom that I'm thinking You've later. Already when prices experienced are, the bottom. Well, I've already not, but I've already got the asset earlier. The goal yeah. is to get the asset as early as you can so that it can be yielding for you. So they yeah. can be creating rent, right? So if I can get, Something at a fifteen percent, and this is just Warren Buffett stuff, right? The guy said, the guy literally says it, uh, like he says, if you get a, something good at a fair price, do it. So I get it. If I get it a year earlier, I don't have to wait for prices to come down fifteen percent. I just got it at fifteen percent below market value. You create the bottom. You don't wait for the bottom. You don't time the bottom. By the time you've timed the bottom, you're already on the upswing. You create it, and and that to me is like the big thing for investors right now. Why we need to think about distress happening in the market is to go and out there and start looking for these opportunities. Start start bidding on stuff. Start lowballing. I hate to say it. Your agent's going to hate me. The, the sellers are going to hate me. The seller's agents are going to hate me. <laughs> you did not hear it here. <laughs> but start like lowballing, honestly. And don't, you know, like, even if your objective is to buy within the next six months, you know how many times, like during 2017, when the market was coming down like this, I would submit an offer like 20% below asking price. And then the people would be like, F off, right? And then Three months later, they're still on the market. I get that call. Hey, would your buyer, is your buyer still looking? Would they still be interested in buying this property? Man, that's been happening recently, right? Like that's that's how we're starting to see that happen again. That's how it's done. We're going to talk about this in the course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the big takeaway there is right again, like, you know, deals are made, not found, but now we're in a point where you can start to find deals and even find the deal and, and having the opportunity to make what's already a decent deal better. That doesn't always happen, right? I mean, we had so much crazy stuff happen in the last couple of years that that there wasn't really many deals. Now, although times do seem to be a lot harder, um, it might be harder to find capital. It might be harder to do a number of different things. It's it's easier in a lot of ways as well. And that that I, that's a bit of a plug for one of our upcoming episodes, which we're excited about, is how to raise capital for real estate because I think that's one of the major questions we everyone gets, right? Yeah, for sure. I highlighted something in this for you because we'll just skip the one about uh, Canada mortgage bonds um, and we'll go to this. I just found fascinating. Okay, sweet. Let's let's dive into this final piece here. Statistics Canada reported that 20% of Canadians own more than 33% of the supply of homes in Canada. Let me read that one more time. 
Statistics Canada reported that 20% of Canadians own more than 33% of the supply of homes in Canada. 17% of Canadians own more than one home. At the same time, the number of families renting a home increased from 4.1 million in 2011 to 5 million in 2021. And that's probably not by choice. That is essentially a full million new people that are maybe forced out of the market by one reason or another. Um, really interesting stats there. Yeah. So this comes from uh, Rajat Sony uh, CFA on um, on Twitter or X, I guess X. they're calling it now. My bad. Sorry, Elon. <laughs> Listen great, to the show, Elon. So yeah, thanks. Awesome follow. There's a great, this is part of a really great thread, um, but it just fascinated me to, to see the, uh, the multi-property uh, ownership piece. Anyway, I think we're good here. Like, I feel like we've covered a lot. That's a yeah. lot of news. Um, a lot there's of a lot news. of scary news and we're just trying to like really get to the bottom of it. Like, especially that insurance one, it really scared me when I first read it. And then I realized, okay, well, the other guys aren't reporting. So it's not like that. It, it is great cause click, for concern. Great clickbait for, uh, <laughs> well, but, uh, yeah. It, I mean, the bigger concern is that CMHC and Sagan also aren't re- report, have never been reporting no. how many loans they have. No, it's like, you can't just like hide all the bad stuff. And then when someone else tries to start hiding the bad stuff, they, they make the news for it. I mean- yeah, Dan, a lot of, uh, you know, the news ones are tricky whenever we do these articles because it's a lot of not so great stuff these days. So why don't we finish things up by just saying, what does this mean for investors? I mean, look, you and I are still buying stuff all the time. We're still helping people secure great investments, buying, selling, transacting, funding development. So there are still deals out there to be had. You know, a lot of this stuff isn't going to affect you, the individual, to the extent that it, you may think it will. My advice is to understand this, be aware of it, but don't let it consume you. Don't let this make you be stuck in analysis paralysis for the next two years. Be aware of it, drown out the noise, and focus on your goals, focus on finding good deals, focus on building your network, and all the other principles and fundamentals that we talk about and teach on this show. Yeah, I think have a good understanding of what's happening in the market. And the reason is to kind of create your ultimate downside risk scenario. So it's like, okay, if Dan's right and all of these bad things are true and they all manifest in the way that he describes them to, um, then would I still be comfortable buying the asset I'm about to buy? If the answer is yes, then it's probably a good asset. If the answer is no, then it's not a good asset. And that's why you listen to people who are bearish because then you just go and find an asset that you are okay with the downside risk. And this was true when the market was running up. It's like the the risk is just upside risk, right? It's like, well, would I be happy buying this if prices ran up 20% or if they fell 20%? Because that's literally where we were at in yeah. January of 2022. It was like, wow, prices could go up 10% or they could go down 10%. Am I going to buy something that I'm happy with either outcome? And remember that all of this is long-term, right? This is all, you know, you're not buying a piece of property and, and looking at just the next six months. You should be looking at the next six years minimum. I don't have anything else to add, Dan. You good? No, yeah. Maybe just plug uh, realestatemerch.ca again, realestatemeetups.ca again. We've got Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Kitchener, Waterloo, Toronto, Barrie, maybe Moncton, maybe St. John, um, and then also realestateinvestingcourse.ca. All the links are in the show notes and sign up for our newsletter as well if you are a, a visual learner. Is that what it would be? Not an yeah. audible learner? A visual yeah. learner. If you want this in your inbox all the time so you can send it to your boss um, <laughs> and you want to see see the charts that we're, that we're talking about on the show and whatever um, and just have them have us send them to you. We'll also have links to every episode in the in the newsletter so you can just kind of like click them in your inbox if you're reminded, if you're not not a super loyal listener yet. We're going to turn <laughs> you into one. I think that's it. Thanks yeah. so much. Thanks so much everybody. This has been Daniel Foch and Ron Burgundy bringing you the news today. We'll see you soon. 
The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.